Hello and welcome back to Rarely Heard, a nine-part series that's all about Hunter's Syndrome, a rare and life-changing disease. This podcast is initiated and funded by Takeda Pharmaceuticals. In this series, we want to provide caregivers and patients with a comprehensive overview of Hunter's Syndrome and share the perspectives of experts and parents of children with the disease. Rarely Heard is intended for an international audience outside the USA and UK. In the previous episode, we talked about the underlying cause of Hunter's Syndrome, its early signs and how it is typically diagnosed. In this episode, let's take a look at what happens after the initial diagnosis and how the disease can be managed. We hope that this episode gives you a good foundation for understanding the treatment options that may be available as you begin this phase of living with Hunter's Syndrome. Although it can be very difficult and upsetting to hear that a family member or child has been diagnosed with Hunter's Syndrome, it is important to remember that this is actually a significant milestone and is key in finding the right treatment options for the patient. A confirmed diagnosis can help the medical team and your family refine the strategies being used to manage the child's condition and make any necessary accommodations for potential challenges in the future. Hunter's syndrome causes irreversible damage to the body as the disease progresses. So, after the initial diagnosis, it is important for doctors to find out the extent to which each organ of the body is affected. They can then determine the most appropriate management course for the patient to slow down changes to the body and improve the patient's quality of life. Decisions about how to manage the patient's condition should be made jointly by the treating doctors and the patient's family. The management strategy should take the extent of the disease into consideration. This is particularly important for patients with severe physical or cognitive impairments. Let's first talk about the types of tests used to find out how much the disease has progressed and how its symptoms can be managed. As you may recall from the previous episode, the presence of neurological symptoms is a key differentiator between the attenuated and severe forms of Hunter syndrome. These symptoms are also known as neuronopathic symptoms, and they lead to a gradual loss or regression in mental development. Eventually, neurological symptoms can limit the child's mental growth and intelligence. That's why the brain and spinal cord are some of the most important organs to examine. Damage to the nerves can cause some of the neurological complications in Hunter's syndrome, like numbness, pain or seizures. Patients may also experience a compression of the spinal cord, and this requires careful monitoring and intervention. It causes irreversible damage to the spine, which reduces the patient's balance and dexterity, and can even lead to paralysis. The corrective therapy, called decompression, can be a complicated process and should be handled by specialists who are experienced in Hunter's syndrome. Some patients may also have an accumulation of cerebrospinal fluid in the brain, 
which can be drained by a shunt or tube. Carpal tunnel syndrome is another common neurological complication, which is caused by compression of nerves in the wrist. It leads to pain, numbness or weakness in the hands and should be treated promptly. An initial assessment may be made when the child is four or five years old and repeated annually. Other assessments are also recommended by the age of three, including psychological and behavioural tests, imaging scans like MRI or CT for the head and spine, and examinations of electrical activity in the brain. Doctors will be able to tell you when and how frequently these tests should be conducted. Some of the complications that are corrected by surgery may return in the future because of the progressive nature of the disease, so it's not unusual to need repeated surgeries for the same issue. These neurological complications are usually seen in patients with more severe forms of Hunter syndrome. But all patients will experience symptoms that affect their physical function. These are called somatic symptoms and they also worsen over time. They happen because of changes to the cardiovascular, respiratory, musculoskeletal and gastrointestinal systems. Let's briefly look at each of these systems to understand how they're affected and managed. Cardiovascular complications can include cardiomyopathy, which means weakness of the heart muscles, and valvular dysfunction, which means problems with the heart valves. These need to be actively monitored every year after the diagnosis. Patients may have high blood pressure and chest pain or angina because of narrowed arteries around the heart. Medications can help to manage these conditions. However, surgery may be required, for example, to replace damaged heart valves. On the respiratory front, the altered structure of the nose, airway and chest, along with thickened mucus linings, can lead to cough, infection and asthma-like symptoms. Patients can also have breathing problems while sleeping. An overnight sleep test can determine whether the breathing difficulties are affecting oxygen levels and brain activity. If so, a bilevel positive airway pressure or BiPAP device can help reduce the blockage to airways during sleep and increase oxygen flow. Surgical removal of tonsils or adenoids can also reduce airway obstruction. In general, pulmonary function tests are conducted at diagnosis or as soon as the patient can cooperate and annually from that point on. Joint stiffness is another symptom that can lead to significant disability for patients with Hunter syndrome. Keeping active or engaging in physiotherapy and range of motion exercises, which include passive stretching and bending of the limbs, can help to preserve joint function to a certain extent. Of course, extreme exercise like competitive sports or any activities that cause pain should be avoided. Doctors usually ask for range of motion tests and radiographies to be carried out on an annual basis or more frequently if required. Aside from the major organ systems, hearing, vision and dental issues are frequent. But specialists with experience in Hunter's syndrome 
will be able to monitor and treat these symptoms. Hearing loss is very common, so auditory tests are conducted periodically, and hearing aids may be needed. Patients may have recurring ear infections, in which case ventilating tubes can help improve drainage from the ear. Retinal degeneration and dysfunction can happen, so eye examinations are carried out every year. Dental examinations are recommended every six months, but even standard dental procedures can be challenging because patients may not be able to open their jaw sufficiently. In some cases, general anesthesia may be required. As with other symptoms associated with Hunter syndrome, early detection and treatment are vital. From everything we have covered so far, it's clear that patients with Hunter syndrome will need surgery to manage some of the symptoms they face. Some surgeries, like those addressing hernias or ear, nose and throat issues, may even be required before the diagnosis is reached. However, it is important to note that general anesthesia is a high-risk procedure for patients with Hunter syndrome. Physical symptoms like obstruction of the upper airway, the short neck and instability in the upper spine, and limited mobility of the jaw can make it difficult for anesthetists to keep the airway open. Some patients may experience complications with certain anesthetic medications. That's why it's important that the preoperative planning is carefully conducted by a multidisciplinary team who are experienced in carrying out surgeries for patients with Hunter syndrome. For some procedures, local or regional anesthesia may be considered, but this is on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, let's switch gears slightly and go back to the cause of the disease, the missing enzyme, idurinate-2-sulfatase. So far, we've talked about how the symptoms associated with Hunter syndrome are managed, but there are also some therapies that target the underlying cause of disease. Let's take a look at these options too. There is currently no cure for Hunter syndrome, but various therapies have been tried over the years to minimize the progressive damage. As you may recall, the lack of idurinate-2-sulfatase causes an accumulation of glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, and leads to the disease. In the past, stem cell transplantations were used to replace some of the missing enzyme. However, this is no longer a preferred treatment option as the results have not been as promising as expected. A more widely used therapy is Enzyme Replacement Therapy, or ERT, which was first approved in the United States in 2006. ERT replaces some of the idurinate-2-sulfatase enzyme and allows breaking down of at least some of the GAGs. It is administered intravenously every week and the infusions can be given at home or in dedicated treatment centres and hospitals, depending on the family's preference and the local medical resources. However, ERT has a limited effect on the neuronopathic symptoms seen in the more severe forms of the disease, as the replacement enzyme cannot enter the brain and spinal cord to break down gags that may have accumulated there. Your doctors would be best able to advise whether ERT is appropriate for your child's condition and needs. 
Some lifestyle changes, like alterations to diet, may improve the patient's quality of life. However, maintaining a balanced diet is important, and each patient's situation is unique, so any changes should only be made after consulting with your doctor. As the disease progresses, weakening of the muscles can cause difficulties in swallowing, so alternative methods for feeding may need to be considered. Symptoms that suggest that the child is finding it difficult to swallow include drooling outside mealtimes, coughing or choking while eating, or an inability to maintain weight. All in all, whatever the current extent of symptoms, continual follow-up is a key part of the treatment plan to monitor disease progression and provide the right therapy at the right time. Based on all of the management options we have gone through so far, it's clear that many different specialists will be involved as the disease progresses. The impact of Hunter syndrome extends beyond physical and functional considerations as it may affect the social and psychological aspects of daily life for the child and family. Having a strong support network to provide individualized, proactive and coordinated care is very helpful. This support could come from specialist centres, integrated care clinics or social workers. Your treating doctor may be able to use their clinical networks to connect you with the appropriate resources, assistance and healthcare interventions to improve the physical and mental health of your child and family. For example, your doctor could introduce you to specialists like psychologists and counsellors to manage your emotional well-being. They could also direct you to patient organisations that advise you about financial assistance programmes in your area. Don't be afraid to ask your doctor about their resources and networks. They may be able to recommend specialists with some level of experience in managing patients with Hunter syndrome or other rare diseases. Even the little things your doctor can help with, like sharing medical records or communicating with other doctors, can save you the trouble of repeating the child's entire medical history to every specialist you visit. They may even recommend help that you didn't know existed. Also, if you have concerns about face-to-face visits because of a long commute or the COVID-19 pandemic, they may be able to connect you with a broader support network via digital or virtual means. Of course, some care systems are more integrated, while others may need you to play a greater role in coordinating care. In either case, you can try to take charge of the situation and look for resources to support yourself and your family. We will talk more about multidisciplinary care in Episode 5 when we interview Dr. Barbara Burton from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University and Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. Remember, getting a confirmed diagnosis is an important step towards managing Hunter syndrome and improving the patient's quality of life. However, that is just the start of the journey. As a parent or caregiver, you need to be prepared to ask questions, take charge, and find the resources you need to adapt to the changes in your daily life. Now that we have a better understanding of how Hunter syndrome can be managed, let's take a break and pause here before our next episode. Thanks very much for listening to Rarely Heard, 
and join us in the next episode where we will take a closer look at managing your emotional well-being and quality of life when living with Hunter Syndrome. This podcast series is initiated and funded by Takeda Pharmaceuticals and is intended for an international audience outside of the USA and UK.